Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we open God's word, let's ask for his help in prayer. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. Lord, we are like a little handful of fish or loaves. We're like Gideon's little lanterns hidden with a light inside. We're not mighty or noble or strong, but Lord, your spirit is omnipotent. Your spirit inspired this word and your spirit now promises to illumine this word to our lives. Strengthen us by your truth, we pray for Jesus' sake, amen. Everybody's got a favorite Bible story. Everybody's got a favorite Bible character. Uh, several years ago now, uh, I remember distinctly a time when I got a chance to help with the uh, little kids. And I love helping with the little kids. It was a Sunday morning and I forget, maybe a missionary was preaching or one of the other guys was preaching and I got to help in there. And incidentally, side announcement, uh, Lauren Miller asked me a, a couple of weeks ago to pray about because there's a need for more workers in there. And anytime she tells me that, I do pray about it. And then I go try to bug people to volunteer in there. And I always wish, I always wish that I could do it because <clears throat> I mean, I can't because I'm otherwise occupied from nine o'clock to 10:15 every Sunday, but I wish I could because one, it always cracks me up. Every time I do it, something funny happens. And number two, every time I do it, I, I walk out of there thinking, I did not just waste that hour of my life. I invested in what matters. But anyway, this particular time I cracked up because I asked these kids, they were, I was sitting in the rocking chair, they were all sitting around me. I said, who's your favorite Bible character? And this beautiful little girl with a bow in her hair looks up at me and says, Mary, and then next is this innocent little boy, this round little face with freckles and these huge round eyes. And I said, who's your favorite Bible character? And he blinked those round eyes and he said, Judas. <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Judas? I'll never forget that. <laughs> We're opening this morning to 1 Peter. If you ask Peter, who's your favorite Bible character? I'm not sure who he'd say. And if you ask Peter, who's your, what's your favorite Bible story? I have a, a, a level good guess at what he would say. And I'm not talking about like the Bible stories that Peter learned when Dave Vandewater taught them to him in rabbi school or the synagogue or whatever. I'm talking about like the Bible stories that he lived through. I don't think Peter's favorite story was when he took that sword and chopped that guy's ear off. Peter had the, had the unique experience of walking on the water, but if you remember, that story didn't end very well either. I'm sure it wasn't the story when he denied Jesus, but I'm sure that Peter's favorite Bible story was the resurrection. You could say it should be all of our favorite Bible story, but it uniquely was for Peter. Why? Because when he saw Jesus arrested, what did he do? He heard himself deny that he knew and loved Jesus 
three times in a row, and then Jesus died. How hopeless is that? Jesus, my best friend, is dead. And all I did to contribute to his death was I stabbed him in the back. And then if Peter thought, I want to make it right, he's dead. How can I go to him and make it right? I can't imagine how hopeless, how dead Peter's hope must have been. Can you imagine? And then three days later, he hears a sideways rumor that Jesus is risen. So he runs to the tomb and he discovers that Jesus is alive. And so instead of being hopeless that I can never be reconciled to my friend, he has this living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm pretty sure that the resurrection was, was Peter's favorite Bible story. And he brings it up in the very beginning of his letter he gives the introduction in verse two, grace, and or he gives this like this opening word, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he says in verse three, our text this morning, 1 Peter 1, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our outline this morning is what it is, how it happened, where it came from, and why. And we're actually going to tackle them not in the exact order of the words in the text because we're going to attack them in a more logical order. The first thing to tackle is what it is. What is it that we've been given? And the answer is we are born again to a living hope. We are born again <clears throat> to a living hope. What does it mean to be born again? The answer to the question, what does it mean to be born again, is simply answered by the beginning question, what does it mean to be born? What is more consequential to the fact that you're here right now than the fact that you were born? How could you be here right now if you weren't born? Your first birth is, the, is your entrance into life and everything else follows from it. So what concept is more consequential than your birth? You could say nothing really. And I don't think we, I don't think we recognize enough in our sort of uh, everybody has control of everything on their own phone and we're very independent sort of uh, culture. We don't realize enough. Listen to this. All of the most foundational formative things about you are things that weren't chosen by you but rather what you were born into. Like all of them. Your parents, how they loved you well and set you up, or how they betrayed you and mistreated you. You didn't choose that. Your ethnic heritage, your place of residence, your social situation, your economic situation. You didn't choose those things initially. You were born into them. And Peter says here that we have been born again to a living hope. You now have a new name that you didn't choose for yourself. 
You now belong to a new people. You didn't aggregate these people because they are your best friends. You belong to them because you've been born again into that family. This is all the blessings of salvation and they're given by a merciful, sovereign God. You have a new citizenship and a new inheritance, a citizenship that you didn't purchase and an inheritance that you didn't earn. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes all things new. The first thing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes new is the lives of the people who are made alive because Jesus has risen from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus makes all things new, and the first thing that he makes new is the lives of those he's purchased because he causes them to be born again. And when Peter mentions being born again, he doesn't focus on the past. Like, I don't know, we save the little, the little hospital things, you know, around your arm for when your kids are born or a picture of them and the baby picture. He doesn't focus back to the past. He doesn't really talk about your testimony or how it happened. He immediately jumps to the future because he says you've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that's imperishable, that will be revealed to you at the return of Jesus Christ. He jumps immediately ahead to the future. Why does he do this? Why doesn't he go back and talk about testimony or conversion? He immediately jumps to the future. And here's the reason why. It's because Peter is writing to church members who are suffering. Peter's writing to church members who are suffering. And when we're, it's a particular kind of suffering. When you're talking to somebody who is suffering because there's a, there's a, a splinter in, in, a, in, a, in a part of their hand that they can't get to and fix for themselves, your obligation is to use your hands to, to help alleviate that suffering. Another kind of suffering is when you're talking to somebody who uh, they, they're just facing a, a tragic death that they, they had no control over, somebody that they love just suddenly died. You understand, don't you, that the way to, the way to help them through that suffering is not to launch into a 45-minute lecture about life and death and all the philosophical reasons why this may or may not have happened. When you're talking to somebody who's suffering like that, it's appropriate just to weep with them, just to put your arm around them and say, I, I'm so sorry. Um, I don't know what we're going to do, but I know you're not alone. Just to be with them. There's different ways to help different people through different kinds of suffering. Here's the interpretive issue. What is the suffering that Peter was writing about? And it isn't just the suffering of like somebody I love died suddenly or something like that. The issue of, the, uh, of suffering was that Christians were suffering because they were Christians. That's the issue in 1 Peter. Christians who were suffering because of their salvation, because of their Christian commitment. In other words, persecution, hardship, mistreatment, being uh, outcast or abused because they were Christians, because of Jesus. So when Peter's talking to them about this kind of suffering in particular, 
we find that he doesn't just weep with those who weep and put an arm around them and say, I don't know what we're gonna do, but you're not alone. It's not a sort of silence and a, and a sort of weeping with those who weep. When, when Peter or any pastor for that matter is talking to someone who is suffering because of their Christian faith, then Peter or that pastor would be obligated to help them to say what? To understand what? I know you're suffering because of Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. Jesus is worth it. Don't give up on Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus. When a Christian pastor is talking to believers who are suffering because of their faith, one of the things that he tries to do is he tries to tell them, hold on and hold out. Don't compromise to get away from this. Don't deny Jesus. Peter knows about that. Don't deny Jesus. Don't disobey Jesus. Don't squeak out of Jesus' commands just so that you can avoid the pain and suffering of following Jesus. Following Jesus is worth it. And so 1 Peter is written to help Christians who are suffering because of their commitment to Jesus hold on to their commitment to Jesus with joy and persevere and hold on and hold out. And so to help them do that, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What it is that we're born again to a living hope. Second, how it happened through Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. So look at this opening paragraph to me and you tell me if it is or isn't all about Jesus Christ. Verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Verse two, obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his, Jesus' blood. Verse three, God is attributed as the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also verse three, the living hope we have is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Then if you skip down to verse seven, he's looking forward. He doesn't look backwards. He looks forward to the glory and honor at, that's coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse eight, even though you don't see Jesus right now, you love him. And you love him so much that you're filled with a joy that's inexpressibly glorious because of Jesus Christ. And he's not done yet. Then in verses 10 and 11 and 12, he looks back at the scriptures and he says, the scriptures are the product of the spirit of Christ. The scriptures are the product of the spirit of Christ. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, the subject of the scriptures, which are themselves the product of the spirit of Christ, the subject of them is nothing less than the sufferings and salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how this all happened to us is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And specifically, it happened because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, out of death. Every time a Christian here is baptized, when we open those doors and baptize somebody, we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we say, buried with him in death, raised to walk in newness of life. Because every Christian who is baptized has been born again. The old life is dead and the new life that they live, they live because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Every Sunday, like this morning, when we come to the table of the Lord, 
If we reflect on what it says in 1 Corinthians 11, if we reflect on what it says in Luke's account, in Matthew's account, Jesus says, you're gonna remember me, you're gonna remember me through this body and blood, through, through this little symbol. But Jesus says, a day is coming when you're not gonna remember me, but rather you're gonna feast with me. I'm gonna take this cup with you in my kingdom, pointing forward to the resurrection. Resurrection is central in baptism, in communion, in the preaching and teaching of the Christian gospel. How have we been born again to a living hope? By Jesus Christ and his resurrection. By Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And what it says is that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Living hope. So here's the sort of mantra, the sort of slogan in 1 Peter. Our hope is anchored in the past because Jesus rose. Our hope is vibrant in the present because Jesus lives. Our hope is sure for the future because Jesus is coming. Here's the sort of mantra or slogan of 1 Peter. Our hope is anchored securely in the past because Jesus rose. Our hope remains and pulsates vibrantly in the present because Jesus is alive. And our hope is sure and complete toward the future because Jesus is coming back. Our first two points, what we have, a living hope, and how we have it because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It gives us an opportunity this morning to talk about hope as a Christian virtue, to talk about hope as a truly Christian virtue. We, hope, like a lot of words, are, we use the word hope, but when we dial into the New Testament, maybe it means something a little different and a little richer than what we use when we talk about hope. We have fond hopes, we have fragile hopes, we have high hopes, we have no hope, we hope against hope. Because in our bones, we're pretty sure something bad's gonna happen, but we hope against hope that it won't. Peter uses hope in a Christian way. What does that mean? Peter uses hope. Peter uses the word hope in a way that he could not use the word hope if Jesus' bones were still in his tomb. You get me? Jesus used, Peter uses the word hope in a way that he could not use the word hope if the bones of Jesus were still in his grave. Peter uses hope in a way that is only possible because Jesus' grave is empty. This is what makes hope Christian hope. A Christian definition of hope. A Christian definition of hope. Whatever words you have to define hope, the Christian definition of hope, those words in which you define hope are marching out of an empty tomb. That's what makes the definition of hope actually Christian. Our hope for the future is sure because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Our assurance that our past sins have been forgiven is sure. Our hope about that is sure because Jesus has risen from the grave. Our assurance that we'll win in the end is, and that Jesus will return for us is true because Jesus is risen never to die again. We hope for an ultimate salvation with a living assurance and confidence because Jesus has risen. Dead hope, living hope. What's dead hope? Dead hope is hope that is dead because it is based on something that's futile, 
something that's empty, something that's weak. Your hopes, maybe you can guess what I'm going to say. Your hopes for the Packers season are dead hopes <laughs> because they are weak. They're not doing well. They don't have the juice. They don't have the mojo. Football doesn't matter at all. Okay, football doesn't matter at all. Talk about dead hopes and some things that maybe won't be as easy for you to laugh about. Your hope that if this difficult relationship that you're in, whether it's a friendship or a marriage, your hope that if this difficult relationship you're in was fixed, everything would get better. It's a dead hope because we weren't made to be ultimately better and satisfied by any earthly relationship. Your hope that if you just had a little more money or enough money, everything would roll. Beloved, that's a dead hope because the actual deepest needs of our soul is nothing that the U.S. dollar can do anything about. We have to be careful where we place our hope. Dead hope is hope that is placed in something that doesn't have the power, doesn't have the juice, doesn't have the life to come all the way through. This is why living hope can only have one location. Living hope can only have one foundation. Living hope has to be hope in Jesus, in Jesus. It can't be hope in anything else. Only Jesus, because only Jesus is, only Jesus is strong enough, only Jesus is alive enough. And I love how he says, we have a living hope. And Peter, just like Paul, Peter, just like Paul, just like me, because I'm copying them, believes that between now and when Jesus comes back, things are going to get worse and worse. Follow me. Peter believes, like I believe, because I'm, I'm cribbing off of Peter, between now and when Jesus gets back, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And yet every single woman and man who belongs to Jesus has a living hope in which they are not utterly and completely pessimistic about their own lives and the lives of those around them. Even though they believe that things between now and when Jesus comes back are going to go from bad to worse. We still have a living hope. Why? Well, how, how do we put up with this dissonance? How in, a, in, a, in, a, in the present wicked world that is a flood with debauchery, Peter's language, we can view the, the future with optimism. What is, what is the cognitive dissonance in that, that I believe everything's going to get worse and worse, and I, and I view the future with optimism? How does that work? The answer is, the answer is, we have to be a little more specific about what we're talking about when we talk about the future. How far out does that horizon go? I'm not all aces on the future, meaning the next decade. I'm a royal flush on the future, meaning the next millennium. Like how far out are we going to go? How far does our definition of the future extend? And you see why hope is living only because hope is Christian, only because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead.
if we hang our hopes on the outcomes of the next 10 days and 10 years. It's pessimism, possibly. How do we cultivate hope? How do we cultivate hope and expand the, the, the forcefulness of our hope? If this is what we have and how important it is, and we've talked a little bit about defining hope Christianly, let's ask the question, how do we grow in hope? How do we grow in hope? An old physician of the soul used to say this, when faith is well, hope cannot be ill. When faith is well, hope cannot be ill. If your hope is feeling ill and sickly, it is because your faith is not strong and robust. When faith is well, hope cannot be ill. If your hope is weak, it's because your faith isn't being fed. The story of a pastoral visit. I made a pastoral visit last week, somebody out in Burlington. I, I just got a message and, and said that I would visit somebody else uh, day, uh, tomorrow or Tuesday. But this isn't a visit that I made. This is from several hundred years ago. An old pastor is visiting a church member in a, in a, in a one-room log cabin. And the pastor knocks on the door and the church member lets him in and they sit down at the table. And there's one in this sparse kind of little house on the prairie log cabin, there's one table. And then there's one shelf on the wall. And on the one table that they sit at, the pastor sees there's a bank book that has income and expenses. And there's a farmer's almanac that says, you know, when to plant and when to harvest and there's a, a local playbill for the, for the theater that's, in the, that's, that's further down the street in the town. And on that one shelf on the wall, there's a copy of the Bible and a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. And the wise old pastor says to the church member that he was visiting, I, I know you weren't expecting me and it's totally fine to have the bank book on the table because you actually need to pay your bills. That's a Christian thing to do. And it's totally fine to have the almanac open on the table because you gotta plant and harvest and care for your family. And it's fine to have the playbill for the theater because you can enjoy the things that God's given in this world. But beloved brother, let me ask you, do you live day to day and week to week and month to month with the things of earth open on the table and the things of heaven closed on the shelf? It's a good question. It's a fair question. Do you live day by day and week by week and month by month with all of the things of the earth open and the things of heaven closed on the shelf? If you do live that way, then your hope will be anemic because your faith is not being fed. If you feed your faith, you don't quit balancing the checkbook. You don't quit planting your, your beans on time. You don't even have to quit going to the movies. But you do have to realize that those things within their earthly horizon have a place that is not the place of living hope. How do we grow in hope? Be sure we feed our faith. Living hope is the eager, confident expectation that Christ died for me, 
Christ is right now interceding for me because Christ is risen for me and he's returning for me. I've been thinking about hope a lot lately because it's really the theme of 1 Peter. And it helps me to answer a question that I, okay, do you have certain questions that you answer them one way, one year, and another way, another year, and another way, another year, and you weren't lying on any of the answers and actually all the answers are right? Some questions are so rich that you can approach it from many angles. And one of the questions that I never quit thinking about, and the answer to this question always changes from year to year, is this question. It's a good question. Which one is the mature Christian? Which one is the solid Christian? It's a great question. I think about it all the time. I get it wrong all the time because I have known people that I would have said they are spiritually mature, but then when you just scratch beyond the surface, there wasn't a lot there. And I've known people that my first whiff of them would have been, they're not very spiritually mature, but when I scratched through the surface, there was a depth and a vibrancy there that I didn't read on first blush. Which one is the mature Christian? How about a definition that includes hope? Definition here would be this. Spiritual maturity is measured by the intensity of your confidence and hope in the resurrection and the life to come. Christian maturity, Christian spiritual maturity is the intensity of your confidence and hope in the resurrection and the life to come. How often do you think about it? How often do you judge this life by the horizon of eternity. So we could say it like this, the measure of your maturity in Christianity is the measure of your active hope in Christ's resurrection and in your own resurrection. The measure of your maturity in Christianity is the measure of your active hope in Christ's resurrection and your own resurrection. Because even if you have a different definition of spiritual maturity than I do, which is fine, I'm going to have a different definition of spiritual maturity than I do in a couple of years because this is something I constantly come back to. But even if, even if you see things a little differently than I'm laying out right here, you've got to agree with me about this. Shallow people live for here and now. Deep people live for something a whole lot further out than here and now. That's a fact. People who are deep, mature, spiritual, they don't walk by sight and they don't judge eternity by the verities of the realities of the shifting circumstances of this little life. If that's what it is and how we have it, the third thing we could ask and easily answer from the text is where does it come from? And the answer is it comes from God and his mercy. Verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused. So it comes from God, he caused it. And it comes from God's mercy. God's motivation is his own love, his own mercy. The love and mercy of God are uninfluenced by human merit. This is the glorious genius good news of the gospel, that the love and mercy of God are uninfluenced and unmerited. He, he's merciful because he is merciful. And Peter piles up terms here. Verse one, he calls us elect. 
Verse two, he says it's the foreknowledge of God. Verse two, he says that it's grace and peace. Verse three, he blesses God for doing it because of God's mercy, because God caused it. It's like my friend that I went out to dinner with who, who was like, I, I, I want my steak rare, very rare. Let it barely touch the fire for a minute and then take it off. Like I want it mooing. I want it really, really, really rare. Like Peter just throws all of these terms at it to show us that our hope is secure because we didn't get it. We didn't earn it. We didn't cause it. This is what gives us security, that it comes from God. And then fourth, why? So what? Why do we have all this? And this we, here we get to the first phrase in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why we have this is so that we would bless God, Jesus, forever. The reason we have this is so that we can bless, praise, worship Jesus forever. This is the first thing in the text of verse three, but it's really the, the so what, the concluding thing when we look at it logically. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We say to someone, God bless you. You sneeze, God bless you. Maybe I don't even really mean that. But we, want God, we say God bless you. And we mean God will give benefits and blessings and good things to the person that we're asking that for. Well, what do we mean or what do the authors of scripture mean when they say bless God? Well, we're not able to do any favors for God. We're not able to give God something that he doesn't already have. But blessing God means praising God, worshiping God, lifting up God's name, telling God and the angels and the people around us how great God is, how good God is, how beautiful God is, how merciful God is, how faithful God is. We have so many reasons to bless the Lord. We sing the song, 10,000 reasons we have to bless the Lord. And that's an exaggeration on the small side, not on the big side, that 10,000 number. We have so many reasons to bless the Lord. And it's so good to bless the Lord. You ever notice I was, uh, this week, I woke up concerned about some things, like a, a heavy heart. And so I did what I always do, open the Psalms, open the Psalms. And I found a psalm and it was like, you ever find psalms like this? This psalm, I don't even write down what number it was. I forget which one it was. But it was like, this is what he, this is what he goes. Listen to this. The Lord's my rock. The Lord's my fortress. The Lord's my deliverer. The Lord's my God. The Lord's my strength. The Lord's the one in whom I trust. The Lord is my buckler. The Lord is the, the, Lord is the horn of my salvation, my shelter, and my strong tower. I lost track of how many that is. Like, how, how many different ways does he have to describe God in this one psalm? Why, why does he do that? Why is he, why is he like 18 different reasons or ways that God's the rock? Well, I know why. It's to make the Bible a little longer. You know? <laughs> like, I shouldn't say this. Like, I get a, I, I really shouldn't say this. I get like an like a anniversary card or a Valentine's card for Amy. And I write on that, I love you. And then I look at it, it's like there's all this white still around there. I'm like, I got to put more stuff in there. Like, fill it in. <laughs> why, do, why, do, why does he give, why does he say all of those labels about God in the Psalms? Well, I can't say that I know exactly. It, it ain't to make the Bible longer. 
Here's an answer that I came up with this week. I think it's because when you're in a tough time and you're crying out to God, you can do one of two things. You can spend all your time talking about how tough your time is. Or you can spend all your time talking about how mighty your God is. And there's an either or. There's an either or there. You can look at your suffering and it is very possible. And the Psalms even do it sometimes. Sometimes the Psalms pile up terms for our suffering. But more often, the, ta- the, the, the Psalms pile up terms for God's character, that he's a fortress, that he's a shield, that he's the horn of our salvation, that he's our buckler and our rock and our mighty God. Which one will it be? Which one do you think would make you healthier spiritually? Which one do you think would make you healthier spiritually? If you pile up mental imagery for how stinky your life is and how bad everything is, or if you were to pile up mental imagery for who God is and how mighty he is, which do you think would make you more spiritually healthy? Think of the mind as a mouth and you're unwrapping a butterscotch and just putting it in your mouth to just suck on it all day. Which would make you more spiritually healthy? That what you just roll over your tongue all day is, woe is me, woe is me, everything's so bad, this person's bad, this thing's bad, this person's bad, and this thing's bad. Or rather, what you roll over like a butterscotch on your tongue is, God is my tower, God is my strength, God is my rock, God is my fortress, God is my deliverer. He's the one that delivered me from my mother's womb. He's the one who will deliver me from the jaws of the lion. And so we see why is so that we'll bless God. Really, the last thing I wanna show you is that if you put your finger on verse three, and then you just start drifting down, down, down in the chapter, you're gonna have to go down to verse like 13 to get to a command. That's a long way. So verse three through verse 12 is one sentence in the Greek and verse three through verse 12 is a sentence of subordinate clauses following the main clause, blessed be God. And then all the way down in verse 13, God says, now I want you to go do something. That now like, here's a command. And I just, I, I love that. I love that. It's, it's a principle that I, if you gave me, if you gave me 10 principles I could, I could bank on, I, this would make that top 10 list. It's the principle that um, when it comes to the living life for God's people. It doesn't start with the living and changing your behavior. When it comes to living life for God's people, it always starts with, it always starts with who you are in Christ, how he's changed your heart, how he's changed your forever. And then eventually, 13 verses later, we can start talking about maybe you ought to make a change in this or that behavior or habit. You see, it's only as the people of God increasingly understand what they've been given and what they possess in Christ, that they'll be ready to do what they're supposed to do with what they are in Christ.
It's only as we understand who we are in Christ that we'll understand how to live in Christ. It's only as we understand what we've been given in the gospel that we'll be able to do what we're supposed to do with all of that. All of our problems in living trace back to problems in knowing, knowing that we have been blessed and called to bless God because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our living hope is anchored in the past, church, because Jesus rose. Our living hope is vibrantly strong in the present because Jesus lives and right now he makes intercession for us. And our living hope is utterly and completely and incorruptibly sure because Jesus is coming back to save us because we belong to him no matter what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow to bless you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you, O Lord, have caused us to be born again to a living hope. We lift our hearts, and even now we lift our voices to bless your name, for you are good. Your loving kindness endures forever. And in Jesus Christ, we have an inheritance and a resurrection that is forever sure. Enable us by the vibrant power of your spirit to worship you now. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.